most of us find the healthcare system totally confusing. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. In Getting Better Healthcare, Dr. Steve Feldman and his expert guests walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take charge of our own and our family's healthcare and what needs to be done for a healthier medical system. It's time to find out what to do. Now, here's Steve. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, and I can't be more excited about our show today. We're going to be interviewing Duke professor, Dr. Dan Ariely. Dan is a behavioral economist, and this has so much to do about healthcare. Uh, his book may be the most important medical book I've ever read, and it's not even about healthcare. You know, in this show, we try to examine the healthcare system, the different parts of it, how you can get better healthcare within our system, what needs to change about our health system. Well, Dan's work is critical. Basically, if you think about economics like physics, then the work of Adam Smith is kind of like the work of Isaac Newton. And then uh, Einstein and special relativity changed everything that, that we know about so many different phenomena. Well, Dan's work in behavioral economics has done the same thing uh, in the physics of human behavior. It tells us so much about the way people really behave, something that standard economic theory just didn't do. This is applicable to every aspect of medicine. Dan has written the most wonderful book, Predictably Irrational, and I, I recommend it highly. Again, it's, it's, it's maybe my favorite book, uh, favorite medical book of all time. We're going to go through some of the things that Professor Ariely covers in his book, but we're going to look at them from a medical angle. The neat thing about his book is it's not just related to medicine. It will change the way you look at so many different things in the world. Dan, welcome to the show. My pleasure. One of the things I love about uh, your work uh, is that it's, I believe it's based on a core principle of, of, of behavioral economics, a core principle of, of human nature, and that is that our perceptions are subjective, and that as we change, maybe throughout the day, throughout our lives, our perceptions about things change. Am I right about that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's consider some of the, the specifics. One of the things you talk about in your book is um, being hot versus being cold. Um, what do you mean by that? Yes, I don't mean uh, temperature. I mean being under the influence of an emotional state. So we call being in an emotional state hot and being far away from it is being cold. So you can think about Mr. Spoke from Star Trek as always being cold, always being distant, always being uh, rational in a sense. And you can think about Homer Simpson on the other uh, direction as always being emotional and living in the moment and not really thinking very, very far. And the interesting thing is that economic theory is basically about spoke. Yes. It's about people who can think the long term, take all things into consideration, think very deeply, have time, are never in a hurry, consider everything, and are not, don't have any computational problems. Well, Whereas in reality, you know, we're not, we're not exactly that. Yes. When, when a patient is with their doctor and the doctor prescribes a medication, the, the patient being Spock-like at that time intends to take the medicine the way they're supposed to. And then they get home and they're Homer Simpson and they don't do it. 
Now, we've done research studies with computer chips in the caps of the medication containers showing that patients aren't using their medicines. I'm sure when we actually give them the prescription, they think they're going to do it, but then they don't. What can they do to make themselves use things better? Yeah, so, so let me tell you uh, kind of a personal story about this. I, I was a patient for, for a very long time, and one of the things that happened to me in hospital was that I got uh, hepatitis C from a bad uh, blood transfusion. Mm. And at the time, this was many years ago, they didn't know it was hepatitis C. For, for a while, I was going around with non-A, non-B hepatitis. And at some point, when they discovered they could isolate uh, the virus, they told me I had hepatitis C, and they told me there was a new experimental drug called interferon to try and to try and fix it. And I was very happy because, you know, who wants to die of liver cirrhosis? So I was very happy that there was this interferon, and I tried it out. The, the trouble with interferon is that it's a very tough medication, and it kind of encapsulates one of the best, kind of most, most important human dilemmas. So every time I would take this injection, I got flu-like symptoms, uh, fever, vomiting, uh, shaking, uh, headaches. And, and the problem is that Think about how are you going to hold an injection in your hand, uh, inject your thigh, knowing that in an hour you're going to be very, very sick. Now, in reality, you should really think about long-term, right? Who wants to die of liver cirrhosis? What a terrible way to die. But, but in reality, the daily pain and agony from this uh, medication was so intense that it's very hard to convince yourself to take the plunge, so to speak, in the short term for a benefit in the long term. Now, when I finished this, and this I basically had to give myself the injection three times a week for a year and a half. When I finished it, first of all, the good news was that it, it helped my hepatitis C. Oh, wonderful. But the second thing was the doctor told me I was the only patient they had who ever took their medication yes, regularly. Yes, that's so great. That's probably true. Now, now how, how did I do it? You know, do I have better self-control problem than other people, uh, self-control ability? The answer is absolutely no, but I basically had a trick. And my particular trick was that I love movies. If I had time, I would watch lots and lots of movies. So on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, on the way to school, I would stop at a video store. I would rent a movie that I really wanted to, to see, or two or three of them most, more, more frequently. And I would walk with them in my backpack the whole day, anticipating you know, going home and watching them. Then I would get home at night. I would inject myself. I would take a bucket you know, for vomiting and, and a blanket for shivering, and I would set myself in front of the television, I would pop a movie in and I would start watching it even before the side effect came over me. And the idea was to link something positive in the immediate term to this negative effect of the, of the medication. Now, if you think about it, it's a very odd idea. Me and every other patient should have been motivated by liver cirrhosis and we should have done what the doctors told us every day. But the reality is that long-term rewards are very, very hard to, as, as a motivating power. Their motivating power on a daily basis is much diminished. So instead, I substituted this reward with something really quite ridiculous, like a movie, but the movie, because it was immediate, was actually uh, more powerful. And because I took it just when I took the medication, even before I got sick, it became even more powerful. And I think there's a general lesson there. And the general lesson is that we can hope that people would do things because it's good for them in the long term. But it's kind of ridiculous because long term is going to basically lose out to the, to the short term way too often. And instead what we need to think about is how do we get things to be appealing in the short term? How do we get things to be 
for people to do it for different reasons. And by the way, you can think about global warming in the same way, right? You can try to get people to care about things that will happen 100 years from now. It's very, very tough. So can we instead substitute it and get people to care about something else right now? I, I, think, um, I think I was forward-thinking because um, I've been going to the grocery store and buying gummy vitamins for my kids instead of the chalky ones. <laughs> it's the same principle, isn't it? That's the same principle, right? So, so you know, we, we did something recently about opening um, savings accounts, right? It's really unpleasant to, to, to fill these pieces of paper. And we offered people a little package that had these forms and also some chocolate with them. Oh, I love and the that. The hope is they'll open the chocolate, they want to eat it, it will make the whole, the whole experience a bit more, uh, you know, spoonful of sugar kind of uh, process. Yes, if, you know, if we weren't worried about the children getting into our medicines, we would make those hypertension pills chocolate flavored. I mm -hmm. mean, we do it for dogs, right? I mean, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, that's great. Let's talk about another one of the, ex uh, the, the, the fun chapters of your book. Yeah, I think you have a, a nice section on more expensive medicines working better yes. yeah so so you know this is all about all about placebos of course and um we know that placebo is a big part of medicine right so so we know that there's lots of treatments out there that a big part of their efficacy come comes from placebo and this is this is not a bad thing right i mean if you could get the body's own healing power to work for you uh all the better right why why not use it so i'm not saying it in a derogatory way on, on the opposite you know we have an unbelievable uh, immune system, we have an incredible capacity to heal, and placebos are basically a way for the body to recruit its own power for, for healing. So, so I'm very excited about that. And what we found was that for pain, uh, that when people get discounted pain medication, they don't work as well. Now, here is, here is what happens with, with placebo for pain. Placebo for pain basically works a little bit like a classical conditioning with, with Pavlov's dog, right? With Pavlov's dog, you, would, you had a bell, then meat, then salivation. Bell, meat, salivation. Bell, meat, salivation. At some point, you didn't need the meat. The animal, the dog started salivating already to the bell. And this happens to all of us. We order pizza, we hear the doorbell ringing, we already salivate, right? We, our body continuously prepares itself for the future that our brain is imagining is, is coming in the near future. Now, if you think about it, life this way, you say expectations have a, a large role to play because if your expectations are positive, it means your body is preparing yourself in this way. And, and in pain in particular, we know a bit more about the biology of placebos. So we know that if you expect pain release from a doctor injecting you something or um, you know, some, some other medication you're taking, your body secretes substance that is very much like morphine. We have this internal substances look very much like morphine, and, and your body secretes it. So interestingly enough, if you get a med an injection from a physician that has nothing in it, nevertheless, your body would have more opioids because of your inside production of it. Well, now, well, yeah. now, what happens is that when you don't think, you don't trust that medication, you don't think very highly of it, your internal production is going to be lower, and as a consequence, your pain relief is going to be lower as well. I'm just thinking of some – how I can use this in, in regular practice. So I'm thinking uh, if somebody wants to buy the cheap uh, grocery store brand of acetaminophen instead of brand name Tylenol because it's mm -hmm. cheaper, they should put the pills into an old empty bottle of brand name Tylenol 
so that they think they're getting the better That's drug. Right. Or That's right. have their spouse do that for them or have their spouse tell them, gosh, the medicine was really expensive this time, even though it wasn't. That's right. So, so there are two ways to think about this. One is how do we get more placebo effect? And the second one is how do we not kill the placebo effect we have already? And by the way, this trick uh, works very well, not just with medication, but also with vodka. You know, vodka is very hard to discern the taste from the actual, the actual flavor in blind tasting. But, mm-hmm. but the, the bottle makes a big difference, right? Sure. So if you, if you want to have a cheap, good vodka, you just need to buy one bottle of the good stuff, and then you keep on pouring the cheap stuff into it. Um, but in terms of physicians and medications, again, you can think about how you encourage people to have more placebo effect. And there was a, there was a reference in an old French medical textbook that told physicians that medications work best when they are just come on the market. Now, why is that the case? Because probably the physicians are the most excited about it. So if you as a physician think that... Um, excitement is an important part of it you want to portray to your to your patients and but more importantly i think that a lot of what we do is to hamper the the placebo effect so you um you you prescribe something to your patient and you say you know what why don't you take this generic instead it's just the same don't worry about it right all of a sudden you're creating an inference that it's just not as good in fact the word generic is a terrible word right why don't we use something that is true and tested, right? Yeah, Why don't you take this will. medication that has been tested for a long time? There's uh-huh. a lot of things about how we can communicate um, that I think actually reduces the efficacy of, of generic un- 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 unneededly. Now, I wonder, within the context of how our insurance system pays for medicines, if it, if it works against us, if a patient is getting a $100 medicine, but they're really only paying a $10 copay, do you think that reduces the effectiveness to a degree? So, so this is something we don't we don't know, right? We've been actually been very interested in in testing it. What what? How do people think about the real price versus how they think about uh, the copay? And and I I don't have a good a good answer for this. Um, but I think it will be very in in our experiment. It, when one of the things we find it doesn't matter who is paying for it, but it's important for people to realize what the price was. Now we haven't tested it enough. But I suspect that as long as you make the full medication of the price salient, it's going to have a positive effect. Excellent. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm Steve Feldman, founder of the drscore.com doctor rating website. We're talking today with Professor Dan Ariely, behavioral economist and author of one of my favorite books, Predictably Irrational. I love this book because it describes basic principles that are relevant to understanding all the decisions we make every day. I encourage you to read his book. Uh, It's it's going to make you see a side of the world you probably haven't been noticing. Uh, Today, we're talking about the implication of Dan's work for our health and our health care system. Dan, another um, issue uh, was the issue of loss versus gain and how humans... uh, hate losing stuff. Gain is great, but we really hate losing stuff. And you mentioned that this even applies to ideas. And one of my first thoughts was, well, wait a minute. If a doctor has a predetermined diagnosis in mind, if he thinks you have this, then he's going to interpret all his findings and do all the testing and and try not to change his theory or ideas 
uh, even if you have something else. Is, is that a correct interpretation of, of your work in that area? That's, that's definitely part of it. The idea is that once we have a particular mindset, we own a particular thing, we have a particular idea, giving it up is very, very hard. So giving up an idea is, is very hard. By the way, the same thing happens with patients. If you have a patient that is already used to a particular medication and you want to propose a different medication, and you're going to say, look, this medication will have different benefits and different side effects. The odds are that the side effects, the negative part, is going to be looming larger in this switch because the patient is saying, I'm already used to what I have. I don't want to increase my, my losses. People are going to be more sensitive to the losses than to, than to the gain. So the, the basic perspective is to realize that our own state is important, that the, the way we think about things is changes from our, our current state, changes to the plus and change to the minus, that's the first thing. And then that changes in a negative way are more painful than change in the positive way. So if you take a patient and you said, look, you're going to experience this. It's going to give you this benefit and this loss. The odds are that the loss will loom larger in the patient's mind, and therefore they're unlikely to accept an offer that has even an overall net, net benefit. But the same thing could happen to doctors as well. Now, I'm a dermatologist, and one of the things on our mind um, – it's tanning beds and how these teenage kids are going to the tanning beds and you can't stop them because they think – I think they think it's going to get them a, a date or something, which is a, a, something in an immediacy issue. Mm-hmm. And, and they're not going to care about the cost of skin cancer you know, 50 years from now. I mean even, even the old style of economics would say you're going to discount what happens 50 years from now. Um, so um, I'm just wondering though if I start to say – or if you're a parent – and you've got a child and you don't want them to go to the tanning bed, if you tell them, listen, every time you go to the tanning bed, you lose a little bit more elasticity in your skin. You become more wrinkled. You lose your yes. good looks every step of the way. Do I understand the theory? Is- That's right. That's right. You want to create an immediate loss rather than a long, long-term loss. An immediate loss, even if it's small, is going to be, is going to be much more important. So, you know, again... If you think about all the stuff we do, uh, teenagers, unprotected sex, all kinds of risks, it's all because they discount the future very heavily. If you got them to do something that is immediate, if you said, look, uh, you are going to uh, get a 10, but when this 10 is gone, you will have another wrinkle, right? Or you can think something else. You know, everybody has some moles and all kinds of things. If you basically said, let's measure your moles and see how the, the tanning changes them and just put something on their mind continuously. So they're thinking they're hurting something now. Or basically the idea is to not assume that people will really care about the long term. Instead, create things for them to care about in the short term. Yes, and so this will apply to parents trying to help their kids make healthier decisions. That's right. Very good. Now, um, a couple of weeks ago, I went for my um, every couple of month trip to the Red Cross to give blood. And, uh, you know, I'm a busy guy. My time's worth a lot of money. But I go and give blood at the Red Cross on a regular basis. And if the Red Cross said to me, Steve, listen, you've been so good. We're going to start paying you $25 every time you come here. I would stop going. That's right. Uh, That's right. There's a lot of things like this. That, that's basically, and, and the basic idea is that we, we live in these two markets. We live in a social market and we live in a financial market. And, we, and these two markets have different rules. So, so you're happy to do things for the Red Cross in the social market because it's free and they're not paying you. 
And if they offer to pay you, you don't take the two benefits. You don't say, hey, I both get to help the world and I get $25. That's better than just helping the world. That's not how you think about it. Instead, you say to yourself, oh, this is about money. I don't work for $25 for two hours. You know, give me 200 we can talk. Yeah. Now, so, so we have these two extreme versions. And, and the way to basically kind of think about them is one is like your relationship with your significant other where you don't negotiate price. Oh, and boy, you don't, now, now I know where you're going with this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you don't, and you don't care about, um, you know, who is ahead and who is uh, behind on every particular moment. You just hope that things will kind of turn out okay in the long term. Mm-hmm. And that's a very ill-defined contract, right? You, you don't have a specific contract. And on the other hand, you have some, some very explicit contract yeah. with people, right? So you could, okay. you could talk all the way in the, in the <clears throat> relationship path. You could, you could talk about prostitution where the relationship is very simple, or you could talk about somebody who is uh, picking up your garbage or mowing your lawn or something like this when you have a very specific relationship. The interesting thing is that most relationships are kind of in the middle, right? So the relationship that the physician has with their patient. There's some money involved, but there's also some, some social a good involved, especially in relationship like patient-physician when there's so much of it. It's about goodwill and caring and trust, and it's not something you can easily quantify. It's not like a contract that I'll, I'll pay you to, to, mow, to mow my grass. And, and this relationship turned out to be very delicate and, and very peculiar, and very quickly you can, you, can, you can hurt them. So I'll give you an example. And we've been doing some studies about uh, what causes people to take and don't uh, to go and not go for second opinions? And one of the things we find is that people feel that they're basically offending their doctor by going to a second yes. to a second opinion. It's kind of breaking this trust in this relationship, right? It's as if I'm telling something to my wife, and she said, "I'm not. I don't trust you. Let me go and check with our neighbor." Right? There's something. There's something um, that kind of violates the, the trust. But we find, for example, that if a patient, you, you tell your patient, you know, next your, your appointment next week, month is at 4.30, and the patient comes and says, you know what, can I come at 4.40? 4.30 is a little difficult for me. I can't finish work that early. And you say, no, I can't. If I'll do it for you, I have to do it for every patient, and I can't do it anymore. And this basically tells the patient that you don't care about them specifically from other people, that they're not special for you. All of a sudden, they're much more likely to go for second opinions. Yes. This is a this social contract force seems to be an, an incredibly powerful force that, that doctors need to harness. You can see how it works on doctors in a number of ways. For example, I would be happy to do a home visit or visit a patient in a nursing home. The cost to me in terms of my time is enormous. The reimbursement is minimal. If they told me, well, Steve, you know, we're going to pay you to, to come to our house – Boy, they'd have to pay me a lot of money. Cause, and uh-huh. I, I would just rather do it for people. Similarly, as we look at doctors' willingness to take care of the poor, you know, if, Medi- if Medicaid didn't exist, doctors would see them happily. If, if Medicaid comes in and says, well, we're going to pay you $10 a visit, the doctors That's are right. going to be like, I'm not taking care of poor people. Um, That's right. I wonder if we can, we can use this in other ways um, to encourage patients to be more honest with their physicians because patients tell us regularly um, – Oh, doctor, I am taking the medicine just the way you said, when they're really not. Yeah. And, and to gain some, some greater honesty using that social contract, I wonder if, if there's some way of doing that. Yeah, that, that's a very important point because my, my understanding is that when, when patients are lying to, to the doctors, the doctors often increase their dosage. 
That's right. And and all of a sudden, if the patient starts taking the medication, that can actually be very, uh, very dangerous, because all of a sudden they're taking a very very wrong, very wrong dosage. Um, but but I think it's very important. You know, what what kind of relationship do you want with your with your patient? And if it's a hierarchical relationship, um, and not and not a fully open one. Uh, that's very hard, but but if you start a discussion with your patient by saying, you know, <clears throat> it's, I, I realize how difficult taking this medication is, and I, I'm assuming you're not taking it all the time because it's so difficult. Let let's figure out how often don't you take it. Right, that kind of changes the discussion rather than assuming that people are taking it all of a sudden. Then the patient can disappoint you if they don't take it because that's the reason people are, are doing it. They they want to look good in their eye of their of their doctor. They don't want to seem like they're wasting their time. And, you know, you prescribed this thing for me and you tried so hard and now I went home and I didn't do my share of the of the job. But but if you say, look, I understand how difficult it is. I know nobody takes the medication all the time. So we erase this possibility. Now if you tell me you take your medication all the time, it will be very hard for me to believe. And let's just talk about when don't you take your, your medication. I think people would get a, a much, much more honest answers. Well, Dan, um, we've only covered a few of the of the um, principles of behavioral economics that are in your book, but I've taken up the amount of time. I'm hoping, if I'm good about my time with you today, that you'll be a guest on a future show. With pleasure. Um, just in, in the last minute, do you have any specific advice for people about things they should be thinking about to improve their health care or to improve the system of health care that we have in America? So... So, so look, I'll tell you that for me, I think the biggest lesson from behavioral economics is how often our intuitions are wrong. You know, there's this mistake and that mistake and that mistake. The interesting thing is that we don't see these mistakes. We have wrong intuitions and we have a lot of trust in our intuitions. And for me, this healthcare debate is really very puzzling because you realize how little evidence we have and how much opinions we have about it. And the question really is, how do we bring more scientific discipline into it? How do we test whether... Uh, people would consume too much health care. Is this really the case, that if you, made, uh, you gave a public option, people would start you know, lining up to have extra colonoscopies? I, I am not sure that this is the case, and we just need to start keeping an open mind and saying we just don't know an awful lot of things. Let's just try and test it out. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, um, Dan Ariely, the author of Predictably Irrational, one of the best books you'll ever read. Uh, Thank you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure, and thank you. That was Dan Ariely, James B. Duke, Professor of Behavioral Economics at Duke University. He's also a visiting professor at MIT. He's a founding member of the Center for Advanced Hindsight and the author of Predictably Irrational, The Hidden Forces That Shape Our Decisions. I recommend this book to you highly because it can change the way you view a lot of things about the world. But... With regard to your health care, there's, there's so many messages in this book. There's a few I just wanted you to take home with, uh, t- take home with you. Um, the first of these is his point about hot and cold, um, the rational self, and then the times when we're just very um, emotional. A lot of times it's probably better to make those critical medical decisions when you're in the calm state when you can approach things rationally. So maybe in the heat of the moment, the doctor presents to you several alternatives. 
There's no rush to make sudden medical judgments. Take your time, especially with big decisions. And it's perfectly okay to get a second opinion. Uh, doctors don't mind you getting a second opinion. I think we encourage it. We love to hear what other doctors think. And so a second opinion is only going to help you and your physician. All right, the next thing is uh, Professor Ariely's point about how human beings hate to lose. We, we truly we hate to lose. So if you're, if you're having trouble um, with some behavior, for example, dieting uh, or, or your kids are going to a tanning bed, uh, anything of those sorts, try to frame the decision in terms of avoiding a loss. Uh, you're, you're going to be much, it's going to be much easier to avoid a loss than to tell yourself to do something because of the gain that you're going to get from it. Um, one of the sneaky tricks that I think some of these behavioral economists do when they want to lose some weight is to make a bet with one of their other behavioral economist friends uh, that they, um, that they'll lose the weight. So they may give the friend a uh, hundred bucks and say, you know, if we don't, if I don't lose the twenty pounds at this by this date, you get to keep the money. I lose a hundred bucks, and they really don't want to lose it. Uh, they really don't want to lose that money, so they uh, will. Um, so so they will lose the weight. So uh, you may want to use one of the tricks of the behavioral economist if you're trying to make a a big change in your health in, in that kind of regard. All right. Another point I want to make is regarding uh, Dan's work on the social contract. People have a very strong tendency to, to want to do things altruistically for others. Uh, when it's an economic thing, when you're being paid to do it, you just want to do your money's worth. Uh, my mess, my take-home message for you regarding that is to go ahead and visit your local Red Cross. And if you can, go ahead and donate blood. They're not going to pay you for it. You're going to be doing it because it's the right thing to do. Now, they may give you cookies and apple juice when it's over. That's not payment. That's just a thank you. And uh, you'll enjoy that thank you. All right. And then the finally, there's so many things where we can benefit in our health in the long term. But short term, it's hard to do those things like take our medications regularly, exercise regularly, eating right. I think uh, Professor Ariely's idea about giving yourself a treat uh, when you do those things will help you do the things in the short run. I just imagine having a little bag of um, of chocolate chips, you know, and taking my pill. I give myself a chocolate chip or doing that exercise and giving myself a chocolate chip. Or if you think about it, listening to this show and give yourself a chocolate chip. Well, with that, I want to say thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you'll join us next week on Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm Steve Feldman, founder of DrScore.com, the online doctor rating website. I hope you'll take time to rate your doctors there, and I hope you'll join us next time. Thank you for joining us today for Getting Better Healthcare. For more information about Dr. Feldman and about healthcare, please visit DrScore.com. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com. And we'll see you back here next week.